This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Thank you for hosting me t- uh, this morning. We're going to speak a, bit, a little bit about the Messiah. And the most important thing you need to know is the Messiah will liberate you from homework. So that's the good news. Um, We know the Ramam has 13 principles of faith. I was asked to discuss these principles of faith. And let's start with a very basic question, because we know that in the Torah there are more than 13 principles. Anybody know how many mitzvot there are in the Torah? 613. So how did we narrow things down to 13? What exactly make something a principle of faith as opposed to a regular mitzvah. We know tzitzis is a mitzvah. It's not a principle of faith. <clears throat> Wearing tefillin is a mitzvah. Keeping Shabbos is a mitzvah. So how do we differentiate between what a principle of faith is and what a regular mitzvah is? And there's an actually a very important idea, and I hope we could clarify this, from Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, Rav Chaim Brisker. And that is, what if somebody never learned about the mitzvahs, and they don't know there's something called tzitzis, or they don't know there's something called tefillin, and they don't observe it because they just don't know about it? Are they still a loyal member of the Jewish people? Yes. Because it's not their fault they never learned about it, they were never exposed, they were never educated. And therefore, if somebody did not learn about a particular mitzvah, they can still be considered a card-carrying member, a loyal member of the Jewish people. Not so with the 13 principles of faith. If somebody does not believe in it, even because they never learned about it, and they were never educated, and they were exposed, nevertheless, the entranceway, the right to be considered a loyal Jew is dependent on not only believing it, but one If they're not educated yet, they must make sure to educate themselves about these 13 principles of faith. Let's talk about the Rambam's article of faith regarding the coming of Mashiach. The Rambam says as follows, I believe in complete faith in the coming of Mashiach. Even even though he's delayed, nevertheless, I wait for him whenever he may come. Yeah, we're all familiar with that. You know that? You learned that? They learned that? They probably know a good song or two for that. Okay. Right, so let's just translate. I want to get it clear because I'm going to ask you a question that perhaps we never thought about. I believe with complete faith in the coming of Mashiach, and even though he may be delayed, and it's already we're in this exile for over 2,000 years, still I wait for him every single day. This article of faith is different than all the other 12 articles of faith in its way it's phrased. Maimonides, the Rambam, who is considered the greatest of all the Rishonim, all the early authorities, when he formulated these articles of faith, he formulated them as statements. I believe that God created and guides the world and everything that happens to me and everything that happens to every individual on this planet has been uh, conducted and guided by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In other words, all the articles of faith are statements. Well, um, what grade are they in? How, where would, how old are they? So many of you have had um, exposure to Gemara. Perhaps you've learned a Tosfis. Have you ever uh, learned the Tosfis? 
So even if you haven't learned the Tosis, let me just explain one thing. Tosis and the Rambam basically lived in the same period of history. But the way Tosis phrases himself is very different than the Rambam. The Rambam makes statements, statements of halacha, statements of Jewish law, statements of practice. Tosis asks questions and gives answers. Tosis says, Vitema, I have a wonder. And Toysus answers, V'yeshloimar, you could answer as follows. Toysus says, V'im toimar, and if you're going to ask, Efshalomar, you could give the possible answer. The way Toysus phrases himself is question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Maimonides, the Rambam, doesn't ask questions and he doesn't give answers. The Rambam states facts. The Rambam says one should believe one day the dead will be resurrected. One should believe that God controls and guides everything that happens in the world. That means... Now let's say somebody insults a person. You know, heaven forbid. Somebody says a nasty word to you. And the Torah says, don't take revenge. And you say, how can I not take revenge? You just hurt my feelings. No, we're supposed to believe that God decreed that somebody should say something nasty to me today. And therefore, I should swallow it and, and say to myself, you know what? It's not really that person who's hurting my feelings. God decreed today that my feelings should be hurt. And I'll, I'll take that as a lesson for the future that probably I need to behave a little bit better and this way something like this won't happen to me again. That's a, a statement of fact. As the Ramam says, that I believe with complete faith that everything that happens to, in the world was orchestrated by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And yet when it comes to the coming of Mashiach, the Ramam doesn't just make a statement of fact. The Ramam asks a question. The Ramam says, I believe in complete faith in the coming of the Mashiach. Fine, so far so good. But then the Rambam has a question. Where has he been? He's delayed. It's 2021. I've been waiting more than 2,000 years. Where is he? He got stuck in traffic somewhere. Where is Mashiach? That's the question of the Rambam. Even though he's been delayed. And the Rambam answers, yeah. I wait for him anyway. Why all of a sudden, when it comes to the coming of Mashiach, does the Rambam have a question? And then the Rambam give an answer. The Rambam could ask questions on any of the statements of, of faith. The Rambam could say, you know, I believe with complete faith that God controls everything that happens in this world. But I have a question, but sometimes it seems that good people have difficulties and bad people seem to be successful. Why didn't the Rambam ask that question? Does God really control everything in the world? And the Rambam answers, yeah, even though it doesn't look that way, but behind the scenes, God is controlling everything. No. All 12 statements of faith, the Rambam states as fact, without any questions. And when it comes to the coming of Mashiach, the Rambam has a question, where is he? And the Rambam answers, I wait for him anyway. Why has the Rambam deviated from his normal method of expression in this Statement of faith. Now I'm going to tell you the answer of the briskarav. That is a great day in your life that you're able to hear the Torah thoughts of the briskarav. That's like the highest level of Jewish intellectual stimulation. The Torah novella, the Chiddush of the briskarav. You ready for this? I had a grandfather, a blessed memory who just passed away this year at 106 years old. He was a Holocaust survivor. He was from Poland. One of the greatest rabbis who were murdered in the Holocaust, their name was Rabbi Nachem Zemba. 
He was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. My grandfather used to study with him daily. And my grandfather was in Auschwitz. In fact, my grandfather was thrown into the crematoria. And he was pulled out in the last second by the Nazi and said, Rabbi, you're able to work. Get out. And his life was saved. I'll tell you a story. My grandfather smuggled into Philin into uh, the labor camps. And he would wake up every morning at the crack of dawn to put on his tefillin. Now, if you're caught wearing tefillin in the labor camp, the Nazi comes in, picks up the pistol, shoots you in the head, and puts you out of your misery. And my grandfather risked his life every single day to put on tefillin. Him and his brother, his brother's name was Henoch, my grandfather's name was Mordechai, he was a rabbi. And every day they would put on the tefillin, first my grandfather, and then my grandfather gave it to his brother Henoch. And one particular morning, my grandfather had put on the tefillin very quickly, tefillin shalyad, the tefillin shalroish, and he gave it to his brother Henoch. Henoch puts on the tefillin shalyad. He then puts on the tefillin shalroish. Just then, the wicked Nazi came in, his name was Ficus. He picks up the pistol to shoot, and then he gazes at the tefillin shalroish, the head tefillin of this righteous man, this tzaddik. And he was gripped in terror. As the Gemara tells us, you know what the Gemara tells us in Masech de Brachos? That when the nations of the world see the Jew wearing the head tefillin, they will be afraid of you. And this Nazi was gripped in terror. He put his gun down and he ran out. And my grandfather wrote in his memoirs that this was an open miracle. So this is uh, the individual we're talking about. Somebody who risked his life daily to make minyanim in the death camps. You know, sometimes we feel to pray with a minion, it's uh, cold outside, it's hot outside, it's a pain in the neck. We have to realize our ancestors, they risked their life to fulfill all Jewish practices. My grandfather said that when he was in Dachau and he was in Auschwitz, every day he believed Mashiach was coming, Mashiach was coming, Mashiach will be here, Mashiach will liberate him. The Rambam, in codifying the halacha of belief in Mashiach, the Rambam says two very important ideas. Number one, every Jew must believe in the concept of Mashiach. But then the Rambam adds that it's not enough to believe in the concept of Mashiach. Says the Rambam, someone who doesn't believe in Mashiach. Or, somebody who doesn't wait for the coming of Mashiach, they are not entitled to be considered a loyal member of the Jewish people. Let's think carefully about the words of the Rambam. Friends, we need to know that when you read words of Rambam, Rashi, or Toysus, every single word is precise, is calculated, has been measured. You know, you know that Rashi... Before he wrote his commentary on Chumash, he fasted 613 times before he wrote his commentary on Rashi. So the Rishonim, before they wrote their commentaries, they had to be on such a high level and such a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Every word they write is like a jewel. We're entitled to ask, why did they say it this way? Why didn't they say it that way? Every word is so precise. The Ramam says, listen so carefully. Anyone who doesn't believe in the coming of Mashiach or someone who doesn't await his coming is not fulfilling this fundamental idea. So the Briskorov explains that the Ramam is articulating 
that the belief in Mashiach actually has two parts to it. Number one, one is required to believe that there's a concept of Mashiach, but that's not sufficient. One has to actively await the coming of Mashiach. You hear there are two different points. One has to believe in the coming of Mashiach, and one has to await, one has to anticipate His coming. So in other words, you get up in the morning, it's not enough to say, if somebody were to question you, pal, do you believe in Mashiach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not enough. Because if we believe in Mashiach, and we say, you know, let, wake me up when He gets here. In the meantime, I'm going to take care of my business, I'm going to have play with my friends, I'm going to uh, follow my soccer team, and when Mashiach comes, let me know, and then we'll, we'll move to Israel. It's not enough just to believe in Mashiach. One has to actively await His coming, as if every day it's like 50-50. Maybe He'll come today, maybe He'll come tomorrow. Do they, they have Amazon here in the uh, UK? Yeah. So you order something from Amazon. I don't know, sometimes... Uh, Somebody asked me to send them a book outside of America. I said, why don't you order on Amazon? They don't have Amazon. So not every country has uh, Amazon. Some, some, some rely on a different service. Anyway, you order something from Amazon, they say it's coming either Tuesday or Wednesday. So on Tuesday, every time the, the doorbell rings, you run to the door. Maybe it's your package. After all, you know, Amazon said it's either coming Tuesday or Wednesday. Same thing with Mashiach. Every day of our life, we have to think, you know what? Good shot, good chance it's coming today. It's likely it's coming today. It's very possible it's coming today. That is the tenet of faith. That number one, we believe in the concept of Mashiach. And number two, we await His coming as a realistic possibility. What's the second book of the Chumash? Anybody know? Second book of the Chumash. Shemot. Now, the book of Bereshus has another name. Anybody know another name for the book of Bereshus? This is the name that the Ramban gives to Bereshus. Do you remember? Anybody know? Bereshus has, has another name. It's called Sefer Hayetzira, the book of creation. Sefer Shemois also has another name, and this name does not sound to be too sophisticated or too brilliant it seems to be a rather uh, boring and uh, bland name. Anybody know another name for the book of Shemois? Book 2. This is the name given by one of the Rishonim, the Smag. Sefer Mitzvahis Gadoilois. It's called Book 2. What kind of name is that? Book 2. Whoa. What a brilliant name. Whoever came up with that ingenious name for Sefer Shemois? Book 2. And the explanation is as follows. We know that one day God is going to redeem the Jewish people. And we're going to go back to Eretz Yisrael, and we're going to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash, and we're going to restore the service, the Avodah and the Beis HaMikdash. But God's going to have to redeem us. He's going to have to yank us out of England. He's going to have to yank us out of America. He's going to have to get us to Eretz Yisrael. He's going to have to sort of allow us to be victorious over the reigning monarchs and powers of the world, how's God going to do that? You say, what do you mean, how's He going to do it? He could do anything. God could do anything. God has made many miracles. But here's the, here's the rule. This is how God operates. God doesn't just make miracles. Every miracle that God has performed or will perform for the Jewish people, He had to perform first on a smaller scale 
and use that miracle that was first performed on a smaller scale to be the predecessor and the trial run and the practice for the ultimate miracle. This concept is called Mase Avais Simen Labanim. What occurred to our forefathers will reoccur to their children. So what mirror, what was the practice, the rehearsal? You know, you're in a play. So before you actually act in the play, you have to rehearse the play. Before the play goes on stage, you have to have a trial run. So we know God is going to perform for us many, many miracles in the time of Mashiach. I don't know, how are we going to get into Israel? We're going to have to cross a big ocean. I guess God's going to have to split the sea. And how's God going to overthrow all the powers of the world? I don't know. God's going to have to bring plagues. So I want to share with you a very important piece of information. This is a teaching of Rabbeinu Bechaye. Rabbeinu Bechaye was a student of Ramban, Nachmanides. And Rabbeinu Bechaye wrote a commentary on Chumash, on the Pentateuch. And Rabbeinu Bechaye brings this teaching in at least six places. And he writes, this is a concept that all the prophets are unanimously agree upon. Namely, that the events of the Exodus, the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the events of God taking us out of Egypt, were a trial and a rehearsal for the miracles that Hashem will perform for us when He brings Mashiach. So the first thing God did is He brought ten plagues on the Egyptians. That was just practice. That was practice for the plagues that God will bring upon the enemies of the Jewish people before the coming of Mashiach. And then God had them chase after us till the sea, and in the times of Mashiach, as we're about to get into the land of Israel, they're going to chase after us, and there's going to be a splitting of the sea again. And we're going we're to cross the, the sea. And actually, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, we're going to travel through the desert for a certain amount of time. And every miracle that you read about in Sefer Shemos, this is not ancient history. We think, okay, now we're waking up in the morning in 2021 to read archaic ancient history of the ancient Hebrews in the Sinai Desert, something that has no relevance to my life. What boring piece of information. I mean, give me a break. Frogs and lice and darkness. This happened 3,000 years ago. That has no relevance to my life. No, we're not reading ancient history. We're practicing what is going to occur in front of our eyes. We need to know what the coming attractions will be for us. It's not ancient history. It's future coming events. That's the Chumash. You have to understand, when you open up the Chumash, you're not opening up a history book. You're opening up a book of what you will experience at the time of coming of Mashiach. That was the dress rehearsal. That was the practice May Hashem show us what it will really look like very soon. I'll share with you an interesting question. Who is the greatest Jew who ever lived? The greatest human being who ever lived? Anybody know? Let's. What do you say? Moshe Rabbeinu. Man got it. Absolutely right. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest Jew who ever lived. The Torah says Moshe was the most humble man who ever lived. And Rabbeinu Yonah says the same way he excelled in humility, he likewise excelled in every single character trait. He was the greatest Torah sage. He was the greatest teacher. 
He was the greatest God-fearing Jew. He had the best character traits of anybody who ever lived. Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest Jew who ever lived. Here's the problem. Who gave him the name Moshe? The daughter of the Pharaoh, Basia. Moshe is not a Jewish name. Moshe is an Egyptian name. Moshe is like, you know, modern day Kevin, Stephen. They're nice names, but they're not Jewish names. Moshe had many Jewish names. Anybody know some of Moshe's Jewish names? Avigdar, Yekusiel, Tovia. Moshe had many Jewish names. He had ten names. So why in the world do we call him by his Egyptian name, the name given by the daughter of the Pharaoh? Why can't we give him a nice Jewish name? You would think he's the biggest rabbi who ever lived. He should have at the very least a Jewish name. So Moshe Rabbeinu starts off his career. He's working for his father-in-law, Yisro, in Midian. And one day, he, he's running after a sheep. The sheep got lost. And as he's running after the sheep, he sees this bush. And lo and behold, the bush is burning, 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 and it's not being consumed. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Asura nova eres hamare hagodol hazeh madua lo what an awesome sight. Let me stop and think. Why is the bush not being consumed? You know what our sages teach us? That many people pass by that bush and nobody ever wondered why the bush is not burning until one day Moshe Rabbeinu he looks at the bush and he says, I can't believe it. This is the strangest sight I ever saw. How is it possible for the bush to burn and not be consumed? And God called out to Moshe from that bush. And you know what God called Moshe? Moshe, Moshe. He called him by his Egyptian name. Why is God calling him by his Egyptian name? A great rabbi, Rabbi Beryl Wine, once suggested the following approach. He was once invited to the uh, Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, in Yushalayim. And he had visited many Holocaust museums, but they had just opened up a new exhibit. And uh, this exhibit was the Children's Memorial. And in the Children's Memorial, Rabbi Wine expected to see pictures, um, recordings, stories, like you see in any museum, artifacts, and Rabbi Wine said he was completely unprepared to witness what he saw. He entered a room. The room was eight to ten uh, stories tall. And the room was black, pitch black, palpably black. It's like you could feel the darkness. And then he looked straight ahead. And in the all-pervasive darkness, he saw one pinpoint of light. And through the effects of mirrors and through architecture, that one pinpoint of light was magnified, was reflected into over one million pinpoints of light. And each pinpoint of light represented one Jewish child who was killed in the Holocaust. And in the darkness... All you heard was a recording that recited names and names as na and names. Hillel Cohen, three years old, Vilna. 
Miriam Goldberg, seven years old, Sarajevo. Name after name after name after name for hours and hours and hours and hours nonstop until you want to run out of the room and never come back there again. Over a million Jewish children. And Rabbi Wein thought to himself, you know, I was born during those years. I'm of the same age. I didn't hear my name on the recording. I didn't hear my name mentioned. That means I'm still around. I'm still alive. I survived the long saga of Jewish history. And if I'm still around and I'm still here, then God's calling me. And God's speaking to me. And you know what God's saying to me? Moshe, Moshe. You know why God used Moshe's Egyptian name? Because very few Jewish children survived Egypt. Every Jewish child was thrown into the Nile and they became the lunch or the dinner of the crocodile swimming in the Nile. But there was one little boy who survived the Nile because the daughter of the Pharaoh drew him out of the water. Kimin Hamayim Ishisuhu. Moshe Rabbeinu was drawn out of the water. And what God was telling Moshe is, Moshe, if you're pulled out of the water, you're still alive and kicking, you're still around, then I have a mission for you in this world. And Moshe said, God, you got me. You're right. If I'm the one Jewish child that's still around today, then I guess I have to listen to you. I guess I have to do what you, what would you like me to do? Hineni, behold, here I am. That is why God used Moshe's Egyptian name. God was telling Moshe, you were yanked out of the water, you're still around, and if you're still around, you have a job to do in this world. And Rabbi Wein always likes to tell the story how in 1945, he was a little boy growing up in Chicago. You know, Chicago is a city in the United States. And uh, this is in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And his father told him, you know, Beryl, this morning we're going to go to Chicago Midway Airport. We're going to greet a great rabbi who's coming to, uh, to greet us in Chicago. His name is Rabbi Isaac Halevi Herzog, the first chief rabbi um, of Palestine. And Rabbi Herzog was a very aristocratic personality. He wore a shiny top hat. He had a cane. And he comes to Chicago Midway Airport and he alights from the plane and he comes down the stairs and all the Jewish children of Chicago come out to greet him, about 200 kids. And they escort him to the Skokie Yeshiva. That's the main yeshiva in Chicago where Rev Herzog delivered a 45-minute Talmudic address to the entire community. And then he says, I would like to speak to the teenagers in the room. Rev Herzog said, boys and girls, I've just returned from a personal audience with the Pope. And I met the Pope because I had a list with me of 10,000 names of Jewish boys and girls who were given to priests who were put in monasteries during the Holocaust because their parents didn't think they would ever survive. So their parents, for safekeeping, gave their sons and daughters to monasteries, to churches, to Christian institutions. And he went to the Pope, he said, give us our children back. These are our kids. You kidnapped them from us. We only gave them to you because we didn't think they would survive. But now we're alive, give us back the children. And the Pope flatly refused. 
The Pope said all of these children have been baptized, and the rule is once a child has been baptized, he can never return to his religion of origin. The Pope took the door, slammed it on Rabbi Herzog's face, and the meeting was over. And Rabbi Herzog is now speaking to the little children, the, the kids of Chicago. And he says to them, and he breaks down crying like a baby. He says, there's nothing I could do for these 10,000 children. They are lost from the Jewish people forever and ever. But you boys and girls, you're still around. You're still part of our people. You're from the very, very few who have made it through Jewish history. You know how unlikely it is for there to be a Jew today in 2021? It's not statistically unlikely. It's not highly improbable. It's downright impossible that there are still Jews today who are alive. It's impossible. You know, in the time of the destruction of the first temple, the Babylonians murdered tens of thousands of Jews. The Romans killed 1.1 million Jews in the year 70 of the Common Era. In 1391, 300,000 Jews were baptized in Spain. In 1492, the whole communities were expelled. The likelihood of there being an observant Jew today is downright impossible. Rav Yaakov Emden writes, say, people say, you know, if I would see a miracle like the splitting of the sea, then I would really believe in God. You ever hear people say that? You know, I would really believe in God if he would make a miracle like have frogs come out and attack my enemies. But I never see any open miracles anymore, says Rabbi Yaakov Emden. You want to see an open miracle? He says, to my mind, the existence of a Jew today is a much greater miracle than all the miracles that God performed for the Jewish people in Egypt. And if we're still around, and we go to a Jewish school, and we come to a Jewish institution every day, and we study Torah, and we observe mitzvot, then God's talking to us. He's calling us. He's saying, Moshe, Moshe, you're still around. What are you going to do for the future of the Jewish people? And that is what Rav Herzog called out to his audience. He said, you're still around. What will you do for the future of the Jewish people? So here we are in this wonderful institution, and we come to school every day, and we think, okay, I'll learn some Torah, I'll learn some of my secular studies, and we're focused on our future and our careers and what life has in store for us. But we have to recognize the opportunity that we've been given. Because we are not one out of a hundred, or one out of a thousand, or one out of ten thousand, the statistical likelihood of being a Jew today is less than one out of a billion. It's almost impossible. And if you're still around, we have to ask ourselves, what does Hashem want from us? What could we do to help build up the Jewish people? What could we do to make the future of the Jewish people brighter? And that's something we need to ask ourselves every day of our life. And if this, we keep this in mind then indeed we will have a very bright future ahead of us. I thank you all for your very kind attention and focus, and I uh, 
offer you my humble blessings for your personal success in all of your endeavors. Bracha v'hatzlacha. And have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.